you know, can the person go out into a farm field, get their shoes dirty, talk to a farmer, and actually enjoy it? Then, can they come back and the next day, can they go to New York to the 60th floor in a boardroom and deal with the bankers and enjoy that? And this is Scaling Clean, the podcast for clean economy CEOs, investors, and the people who advise them. I'm your host, Mike Casey. My day job is running TigerCom, a firm that counsels companies that are helping move the U.S. economy onto a more sustainable footing. I get to meet the people who are succeeding at building, funding, or advising the most successful companies in your sectors. So each show, we try to bring you usable insights from these leaders so you can apply them to the business of running your business. Hello, Clean Techers, and welcome back to another episode of Scaling Clean. This is the podcast for clean economy CEOs, investors, and the people who advise them. Today, I've got a highly accomplished, longtime clean tech leader. Over 17 years, Nick Cohen has held leadership positions in five companies, with four of them in clean energy. He's now the president and CEO of Doral Renewables LLC, which is developing the appropriately named Mammoth Solar Project at 1.3 gigawatts. It will be America's largest utility-scale solar farm. I've wanted Nick on the show since I first talked with him last year, and I'm really glad to have him on the show today. Nick, welcome to the show. Thanks, Mike. I'm really glad to be here to talk about my career in renewable energy. Well, let's start with that. Talk to me about your background. How would you summarize for our listeners your career as a company leader? If you want to be a really good leader, in my opinion, you have to enable the people around you to be successful. And you do that by caring, by, by genuinely caring and looking for all the different ways that you can make them successful. And then you have to take those tools and all that enabling and ensure that you're a good listener because you're never going to be the smartest person in the room. I, I, I know as leaders, it, it's very easy to fall into that trap to think that, you know, you, you're the one who knows the most, but the best ideas come from the people around you. And as long as you have the attitude that it's okay for someone else to come up with the idea, you can just listen to all of the smart people around you. And then it's your job to put it together and make the decision based on as much information as possible. And that's what defines a good leader, someone who can listen and enable the people around them. You'll get to a better result that way. Nick, that's a great segue. Tell me about the first time you were somebody's boss. If we were going to split screen, Nick Cohen, when he first started managing other people, and Nick Cohen leading now, and you and I sat next to each other watching that split screen, what are the differences that we would see? Well, in my younger days, when I first became somebody's boss, um, I was promoted through through a system where, where I excelled. I was very good in financial services. And so I had my way of doing things. Then I became the boss. And as the boss, I began to impart my way on the people around me. And that upset the culture of the business at the time. People, I learned, have a different approach to doing things. Not, not, your way is not always the right way uh, for everybody. And even though it works for you, it may not work for the next guy. And part of empowering people is to observe and understand them and then allow them to do what they do best in the way that they do it best. So 
my mistake early on was trying to impart my method on everybody rather than have them use their own strengths to advance their, their success. Did that shift that you just articulated come about from some mentoring you got? And I'm, I'm particularly interested in the people you would look back on as your most important mentors and what you learned from each. I, I think the lesson I learned there was that I wasn't following my mentors at the time. And, ah, interesting. Uh, my, my mentors were my parents. They were very entrepreneurial and they were very hardworking. My father w- was an engineer and an executive and uh, worked very, very hard. And my mother was an entrepreneur. Uh, we, at one point, we had a, re- a Japanese restaurant in southern New Jersey. And no, no matter how difficult it was, um, my parents were always optimists and they always got up every day to fight and, and be the best that they could be. And, and then when they integrated me into their business activities, the mentorship that I got was incredible because ever since then, I became an entrepreneur. But the part that, that I needed to pay more attention to was they were very careful not to tell me what to do for everything. They wanted me to find my own strengths. And I think if I had taken that lesson in the first time that I was a boss in my early 20s, I, that first experience would have gone better. And, you know, as I reflect, it's definitely something that I take with me every day is, is that, you know, to empower people, you have to understand them. To understand them, you have to care and, and you have to take the time to, to, to really see what's going on and, and find their strengths and try to encourage them to use those strengths to succeed. Their success is your success. I'm just following up on that because I'm really curious. Have you found that there's a baseline period of time when you have a new employee who's, who's reporting up to you? You have a sense of how long it takes for you to do that listening, to do that observation so you really understand them and can use that Nick Cohen style that you've articulated? Mike, believe it or not, the answer is five minutes. What? That's really? How I, that's how I start every introductory conversation. Uh, every person who, who works for our company, regardless of who they report to, uh, on their first day, we get introduced. And, and I spend most of that time listening and I'm, and I communicate it to them very clearly that that's important to me. And, and by the way, it's important to everyone in our organization because relationships are our core value. And, and that's not just cheap talk. You have to walk the walk. And so that begins with the introduction. So you really have to listen. And, and by the way, if you're going to be a successful leader, you need to mean the, the things you say. And meaning them means that you were thoughtful about it. You're, you're not just saying it. And also that you're feeling it. Mm. So I, I'm thoughtful. I'm feeling it. And I'm very conscientious about my approach. So it, it's very present on my mind because once I'm out of the picture in the day-to-day, things get busy I want all of the people in our organization think, thinking the, the same way. I want them to all be listeners. And, uh, 
And, you know, it, it all starts with the leadership and, and how I, I cast the, the first uh, opportunity when, when I talk to them. So let's say I come work for you tomorrow and I have my five minute introductory chat. I'm not going to be your direct report. Is, are there things you're listening for in that five minutes? Not really. If it were an interview, I'll address that in a second, that it would be different. But if you've already been hired, then, then I'm listening to my chiefs who are telling me that this person is the right person. And, and I have 100% confidence in their decisions, for better or for worse. And, and so if they're telling me this is the person, I'm believing right away that they're the person. And my job at that point is to, to begin uh, supporting the empowerment of that person. So, so that, that's how, how I, I view the introductory uh, conversation with a new hire. Now, in the hiring process, that's different. Because relationships are our core value, that's the first and main line of my questioning in an interview because the technical skills and competency will be pressed with the, uh, with the supervisors who are actually doing the hiring. They're the experts in whatever the subject matter is that that person is interviewing for. So what I can do as the interviewer is to assure that this person is going to be a good cultural fit in our organization, which means they value relationships. That, you know, can the person go out into a farm field, get their shoes dirty, talk to a farmer, and actually enjoy it? Then can they come back and the next day, can they go to New York to the 60th floor in a boardroom and deal with the bankers and enjoy that? Okay. Interesting. When you're that person who can go from the barns to the boardrooms, then you've already cleared the first hurdle for qualifying to work at Doral. I know I'm straying off the list of questions, but you're, it's your fault. You're too interesting. So, <laughs> <laughs> All right. So here's a question. I start day one, and I am a direct report to Nick Cohen. Has Nick Cohen taken sufficient measure of Mike Casey in five minutes, or is there more like a week or two or three? What have you found as the general period of time in which you assess me as a direct report to you? Since you're already hired, uh, you're already prepared to hit the ground running uh, because we, we really do hire, hire only the best. Uh, so, and that means you have the experience and, and you know what you're doing and you probably know more about it than I do. So the key to your first day and this, and, and the success to all of this is, is that I've done my preparation. If you're reporting to me, I have spent the time to socialize your new existence within our organization. I have lined up all of the tools, procedures, policies in an orderly fashion that can be easily communicated to you. I've arranged meetings for you to connect with the people who are going to be in your ecosphere. And that's really important because as a leader, remember how I was saying that we're going to enable the people to be successful and give them the tools? Well, part of that is you need to make sure that you're fostering communication, especially in this day and age. It's a distributed workplace. People are all, if you want the best talent, you have to go to them. Okay, the, the days of everybody relocating to a central location, those are over if you want to be competitive. You need to find the people. And, and, and by the way, in finding the people, 
you're also promoting a work-family balance, which is very important. When people can work from home, they tend to balance their family priorities. And you know, we don't want this job to wreck anybody's life. What's, what's good for their family is also good for us, and, and we care about them. That's our core relationship. So when that person shows up to work, we have a myriad of technical tools and we have people distributed everywhere. And we just need to make sure that the preparation was done and that everybody in the organization knows that this person is starting on a certain day. Here's their role. And, you know, here's, here's what you should be communicating to them. So it's all preparation. On that first day, you're going to walk in and you're going to see that, that we were prepared. I hear a lot of forethought that's gone into the design, if you will, of the onboarding experience. How long did it take you to get to that place? You've got such a developed, robust onboarding system. It's definitely something that, that's been evolving, but it has always been something that, that, that's been a thoughtful process. It's not something that we just delegate to, to, to somebody or the AI or something like that. No, it doesn't work that way. Um, that's part of the design of our organization. Uh, we'll always be a core relationship value organization. And you know that means that when people start, they're getting the VIP attention that they, they need so that they feel welcome and, and, and that they get off to a good start. It's just like when you build a solar farm or you build anything, all of the pre-engineering and, and design, it, it, that, that's where, where all the success happens. And you know, as much as you can do upfront, the rest of it has a better chance of success. And, that, and when you're dealing with people, that's especially the case that you know you, you you need to get them off to the right start and you know the attitude the every everything starts in a good place and um, and then it's easier to maintain that way i hear that the purpose of the nick cohen 5 minute conversation with every employee is if as much as anything else to model a listening based management style is that accurate yeah that i i, I love that term that that's a great term, a listening-based uh, management model. That is that's what we have, and um, and you know that's what we'll always have because we have to tra- stay true to that core value. You moved into clean energy relatively early in your career. I'm interested in what drew you to this sector, and what's kept you in this sector. There are a lot of careers that many of us could do. And my recommendation to anybody listening to this is, is try to pursue one that you feel good about. Uh, and so right away, this would renewable energy, clean energy would be on my short list of careers that I would feel good about. Uh, I also think that the opportunity is amazing in clean energy and, and it has been for, for uh, 15 or 20 years. Uh, so you want to get into a career that has a future and clean energy has always had a future. Uh, and then the people are amazing. You get the most interesting worldly people in clean energy. When I started in this business, I started with clean coal. And because at that time, it, it really wasn't a given that that natural gas was going to come along and displace coal. And uh, and renewable energy still hadn't uh, gotten to, to economies of scale. And it looked like clean coal was going to be the answer, that somehow we were going to 
use coal in a cleaner way. And in doing that, the whole world was doing it. So it was worldly people here at home and it was worldly people abroad. Everywhere I went to, the people were exciting and uh, very good natured and, you know, had, had a, a sense of, you know, a, a sense of responsibility uh, to their to their colleagues and, and to the planet. So it was just uh, such a such a good career to, to, to pursue for me for all of those reasons. I don't think I've ever heard that answer articulated like that. And it's really, it's lovely. I I feel the same way. So in your travels over the last two decades, social functions, professional or personal, I imagine that you have had reasons to compare notes, so to speak, with peers who are, have leadership positions at companies in more mature sectors. To the extent you have had those conversations and you've matched notes what is your take on the difference of managing a clean economy company versus managing companies in more mature sectors? Personally, I, I, I really think that there are there's several different styles of management. And uh, I do think that my style of management could work in just about any industry. If, if you're the CEO and you really care about the people and the customers and the whole value chain, and it's not just a job to make money, you will have a successful company, whether it's in a mature sector or whether it's in something innovative and, and, and you know, with, a, with a high growth uh, possibility. The mature sectors do tend to attract leaders that are more about telling people what to do. And it can work. I, I'm not saying that that is, you know, for some people that works. Uh, it's just a different style. When you get into uh, an innovative, fast-moving industry like clean energy, you, you get very talented people. It, it's kind of a top-heavy industry, and the, the the people come to the table knowing a lot. And I I think that if you're not a good listener or a good people person as a leader, you will lose the culture of your company, and people will leave. And you know where where I see it working at our company is that we have not had a retention issue at all. Uh, we've been very successful in getting the best people. Uh, most of the people that, that we interview say yes. And, and we know that there's a lot of attrition at, at other companies in this business because there aren't enough people to fill all the positions. So people, they're not staying here for the pay that the pay is competitive. It's fine. They're staying here because they believe in what, what we're doing and, and they believe in the leadership and it, it's something very special. I want people to come to work every day liking their jobs. If you don't look forward to, to working here, we need to know why and, and you shouldn't stay. And so we're trying to make an environment where people look forward to working here. And I, I think sometimes in the more mature companies, it's a little more difficult and you tend to get people who really are there for um, the benefits and, and, you know, the things that, that cause them to have to stay. You know, I, I just feel like the people in our company, if we weren't good, they could go anywhere they want. And so, you know, you really have to figure out what is going to make us different from our competitors. And that, and that is caring. You know, I want to make sure that our people are dealt in to our success. 
you quit your job tomorrow and you become a lecturer at a local business school, your first lecture is describing the role of the effective CEO to your students. What are the parts of the job and the relative proportionality? Tell me the lecture overview that you'll give. So as the CEO, you you have to be able to roll up your sleeves and be the salesman for the vision. And you have to believe in the where you're going and the product. You also have to understand the customers. I always say, give the customers what they want. If you're not plugged in with the customers as the CEO, then you're just there doing, doing a job. You know, it, it's very easy to be an ivory tower CEO. You have a lot of pedigree. We all do. And you, you could hang your hat on that for a while, but that is not sustainable. You've got to be connected to the entire ecosystem and you have to feel it every day. I literally wake up and sometimes in the middle of the night feeling it. And, you know, and, and that I realize that's an intangible answer. But my first thing as a CEO that I would tell the class is you, you need to be the biggest believer. And, and that means, you know, you've got to you have to feel it. Uh, of course, you have to be very in tune with, with the business fundamentals. And that's something that either if you have a lot of experience, you're, you're that way or experience plus some sort of uh, education background. Um, you know, you can be plugged in with the academics of it. But if you want to lead, you, your people need to believe in you and they're not going to believe in you if you don't believe in, in the system, the, the organization and, and, and the customers. So that, that's what the CEO is all about. You know, that's what leadership is all about. Of course, there's also discipline for policies and procedures. If you have any organization of scale like ours, you, you must be thinking about where are the pinch points and, and you have to invest in technology and you have to have policies and procedures. You have to conduct the business every single day as if it's a, a big business. And it is. You have shareholders. You have a responsibility to everybody around you to make sure that you're accounting for things the right way, that uh, there's accountability in your process, and that you're being very efficient with the money that you're spending. So those are all part parts of the responsibility of a CEO. We want to be you in 15 years. What advice do you have for us? What would you say? I would say that, um, you know, First, I, I hope that you'll find your way and you'll be you because uh, what my what my success and happiness is, you know, if you're in my shoes might be a little different for you. So, um, you know, try, try not to mimic me exactly. Um, number one. Number two, be real with the, all the people around you. Do not get caught up in egos and arrogance. OK, that that will it will eat you alive. Because it's a rough world out there and you're better off making friends and building trust than being the, the one that's creating friction. So, you know, if you're thoughtful about how you deal with people and you're easy to work with and you show up every day and work hard, you, you'll get to where I am. This is now my favorite question from these interviews that's emerged. Mm -hmm. there, I want to know if over the years you have developed practices or habits that keep Nick Cohen operating at as high a level as a CEO as possible. And we've heard answers that range from, I make sure I go to the opera, 
I get up at five o'clock in the morning and I work out. My wife and I hike every weekend. I mean, it just spans the spectrum. And I'm so interested in how company leaders maintain their own performance day in, day out. What are the supplemental things that Nick Cohen does to keep Nick Cohen performing at this high level as possible? To succeed, you must find a way to have high level thinking. And and usually that does start with a, a, a family work balance. So hobbies are important. I try to turn my day off at some point, six, seven o'clock at night. I, you know, I, I try not to respond to emails. I'll glance at them occasionally. I spend the time with my wife and my kids. I have hobbies. I like to snowboard. I, I have saltwater aquariums. I, I like classic cars. Uh, I spend a lot of time outside doing stuff. Uh, so, and those things are very important because when you're doing those things, they take your mind off of all the other things. So it's very important to be able to compartmentalize and, and design your life in a way where you you have time for high level thinking. If you don't do that and you find yourself running 15 hours a day, like crazy, you, you will be eaten alive by somebody like me. Okay, because I will outthink you, and, and and I will win, and you know the to be successful, you need to be driving to be number one. I, I remember when I went to uh, the Fuqua School of Business at Duke for my MBA. Um, right before the first class, they they send you a massive amount of homework, and we walked in, and on the first day, the professor said, "How many of you got it all done?" And and about half of the class raised their hands. And the other half, including me, did, didn't didn't raise their hand. And they said, "All right, well, you got your first F if you did all that work, because what? Because, yeah, because you have wow. to learn, you have to learn priorities, and and there's no way you could do everything that comes at you. And and I that was a lesson learned for half the class. Wow, and a for the other half of the class. Wow. Okay. All right. Yeah, I, I I thought, boy, I, you know, on that that was my first day, and. I probably got my money's worth, you know, out of that one, that validation. But it it, it was very true. You know, you, you, you just have to think about how am I going to think about the next big idea? You have to be, how am I going to be different than everybody else? Well, you're not going to figure that out dealing with a thousand emails a day and, and trying to get involved in every chief's decision. That's where you're empowering people. I want my people to make the decision and tell me. Okay, I don't have to be in every meeting. I don't have to be the the authority on every decision. And 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 trusting my people, it affords me the time to to think about all the things that need to be be uh, so all the problems that need to be solved and all the new ideas that we need to differentiate ourselves. Broadly speaking, hiring is always cited as one of the most challenging parts of leading companies. You've kind of answered this question already, but I'd like to perhaps hear a more enhanced answer. What have you learned about successful hiring? In this business, if, if you think pay and benefits are the reason people are coming to you, you will be losing out in the hiring uh, game. People are looking for a future a sustainable future in a company where they feel welcome and they look forward to coming to work every day. And you have to be able to convey that to them if you want them to work for you. 
and you have to convince them that they're going to be successful. Uh, I think too many companies miss out on these uh, these attributes that uh, that you can bring to the table, and instead they're just focused on the transactional or the mechanics of the business. And you know, at that point, you sound like every other interviewer. So you you, you need you need to get to their heart. And you, it's a two-way street. You, you, they need to know that you're listening to them as well. And, um, you know, that really is a two-way street. And if you can convince them of that, then you're, you're more like, you'll have a much better success rate of, for hiring people. It's all about the people. It really is. They're, they're too smart. The, 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 the workforce, they can go anywhere. Everybody's paying about the same. They're too smart to just follow the guy that that that's dangling the carrot you know you, you've got to really tell them what what's inside do you have a go-to interview question that has stood the test of time for you and if so what is it i mean i i do like to ask people how, how they would react to uh a customer uh being offensive to them and sometimes you can um you know, what they say and how they react to it. Uh, you know, it, it's a little bit of a rabbit hole, but it, it does give you some good insight into um, the kind of person that you're dealing with. You know, in our organization, arrogance and ego uh, really don't don't get you anywhere. So, you know, we're screening for that. And, you know, how you would react to, to somebody uh, who is offending you personally, it, you know, does reveal a lot. It reveals a lot about your maturity, your patience, your ego, all that kind of stuff. What's your guidance on firing people? Uh, so I, I have some pretty strong opinions about that because when you fire somebody, it's not just about the person. It's about the organization. They they have colleagues. You know, There's implications to all the people around them. And I, I think in corporate America, it's commonplace to just not only tell someone goodbye, but the security is waiting to, to walk them out. And I think you have to have more trust in people. It's a small industry. I, it, it's a, it's amazing how many people are working for somebody one day and, and then it, it's flipped, you know, three years later, it's flipped. Maybe, maybe they're a customer, maybe they're a client. I mean, that the person you're firing could be the, your, your customer sitting on the customer side in, in six months. So, you know, just because you're firing them doesn't mean they're a failure. They could be good at something and, and they just, you know, whatever was happening at the time in their life or in your business or whatever, it just didn't match up anymore. And it was time for them to go. You could be their friend again. And so, you know, you should never burn bridges. And I think too many come when you escort somebody out with security, that, that doesn't bode well. You know, we're a contemporary company. We do things like work from home, take the maximum amount of holidays that are, are possible. We have the most liberal policies uh, because we want people to have a, a, a work-life balance. And these are the things that contemporary companies do. And when it comes to managing people, including managing people on the way out, uh, you know, you've got to do things differently or else you're just going to be a dinosaur stuck in the past and, you know, as a progressive clean energy company, you know, we're going to set an example that, you know, we, we do everything in, in a thoughtful and contemporary way. We like to close with two broader questions. So the first is, as you reflect back on your career to date, 
Would you say that success in running a company is more reliant on what you choose to do or more reliant on what you choose not to do? It's definitely uh, both. And, and each one of those depends on what's happening at the time. People around you, your customers, your, your colleagues, your stakeholders at every level, whether it's, it's somebody working in a government office who has to regulate what you're doing, or it's a customer buying $100 million worth of power, or it, it, it's the colleague sitting there crunching the numbers every day. They're watching everything you're doing. And, and they're not watching like that's their mission in life. But people notice. And, and it's not just the company. It's you as a person. It's all of our people. You know, you, you, you have to even be bigger than your company because, you know, you, you own your character. You own your reputation. And so as situations happen, how you handle them is indelible. And you can definitely discount your future by what you do and what you don't do for the moment. So you can willfully neglect your responsibility by not doing something, okay? So, and because of something was hard to do. But if you do that hard thing, people will remember you for that, that you were the one that got out of bed in the morning and dealt with the hard thing. Also, if you're the one who did something like you thought of a different approach, okay, that'll be remembered too, that, that you're the one who created this opportunity because you initiated it, because because getting back to hey, I found time to have high level thinking. So so the answer cuts both ways, and and it, it, it the gravity of it is equal, and what you do and what you don't do have have equal gravity in the outcome of your success. Final question: Has your work to date left you a climate optimist? or a climate pessimist and why? I'm definitely an op- optimist and I, I, I like data. If you, and really, um, if you just take a couple of data points, uh, for sure, I live in a cleaner world than my grandparents. Okay, my grandparents lived in, through the industrial revolution and uh, you know there weren't any environmental codes or anything. And they were there literally inhaling the particulate uh, and, and um, the things that, that you can't do today. So, so for sure, it's trending in the right direction. And the impact that we're all having today is, is going to assure that my grandchildren are going to have a much cleaner world than we have. And, and you can track the, how bad the air emissions were and uh, back when my grandparents were, were working. And and you can see how over the past 10 or 20 years, they really have improved for, for a lot of reasons. And we still have a long way to go. Don't get me wrong. But globally, we have a long way to go. But renewable energy has the people, the technology, the economies of scale, the, the business model. It's all there. So economically speaking, there's definitely a compelling business case that the climate is going to get better as a result of the improvements that are being made. You also just have public policy and humanity doing what it can to improve the environment and, and the planet. So it's not getting there fast enough. There's going to be pain. We're in pain right now. It's happening every day. Tornadoes are sweeping across the country. Climate change is affecting all of us. Uh, but it's not the end of the world. And 
it's trending in the right direction. So, so for those reasons, I'm an optimist. All you have to do is compare the three data points of my grandparents, me, and my grandchildren. And for sure, there, there is a, a, a linear relationship between the health of the planet and, and, uh, and the time. So that, that's where my optimism comes from. Well said. Nick Cohen, this has been a leadership masterclass, super rich conversation. I have thoroughly enjoyed it. So thank you for the work you're doing. Thank you for this time you took with us to share this wisdom. And I'm, I think we're going to be challenged <laughs> cutting this down to 30 minutes because it's some pretty rich stuff. So I, I'm really grateful to you and I appreciate you for being in the industry and the leadership role you have. Thank you so much, Nick. Yeah, thanks, Mike. I, I really appreciate it, and I, I wish uh, twenty-five or thirty years ago, uh, you know, some somebody would have would, would have told me if you want to be successful, listen to the people around you and empower them. And if you do that, everything will work out. And uh, you know that that that's the advice I would give everyone. And I'm glad that your platform is offering that opportunity to to the audience. So thank thank you very much for everything that you're doing. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Scaling Clean, the podcast for clean economy CEOs, investors, and the people who advise them. I'm your host, Mike Casey. Our producer is Brian Mendez. If you like what you hear on Scaling Clean episodes, we'd appreciate it if you can give us a five-star rating and leave a comment wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, we wish you all the best in your clean tech endeavors.